This is the Teamwork Arts Podcast's history series in collaboration with Ithyasology. Today we are here with historian Dr. Nayanjot Lahiri. Thank you so much ma'am for joining me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Lehri, I want to begin the conversation with your own journey with history. Before we talk about Ashoka and the other territories of the past that you have tapped into, I would it would be very interesting if you could briefly talk about what made you not only choose the subject, but also stay with it. So, uh, my journey with history is actually, uh, it began in school. Mm -hmm. It was a consequence of uh, reading some really interesting books mm -hmm. and then later during my undergraduate years at mm -hmm. St. Stephen's having some wonderful teachers. So the books I remember reading in school which made a big impact on me uh, were books like the work of the Dutch American historian Henrik Willem von Loon, mm -hmm. The Story of Mankind. Uh, I also uh, remember reading the title eludes me, but it was a book on world history by Derek Wood. But above all, and I went on to work on the Harappan civilization. Uh, in school, I read uh, Mulkraj Anand's uh, Maya of Mohenjo-Daro. Uh, of course, history was not a subject I did very well in school, but I was interested in it. So I decided to do my undergraduation in history. And at St. Stephen's, we had some wonderful teachers, but uh, the teacher I remember most is Vashudev Chatterjee. Uh, Vashudev Chatterjee had just become Dr. Chatterjee. He had returned from Cambridge after getting his doctorate. And he taught us not just modern history with the permanent settlement and the East India Company and all of that, but he also spoke about the fundamentals of history he recommended some wonderful books to us and he just made us feel that thinking about the past mm. was really the most interesting and important thing we could do. And of course, from that, doing my master's, I do remember uh, a teacher of political thought called Randhir Singh. Mm -hmm. He taught two uh, courses on the history of political thought and he was really consistent and uh, brilliant. Uh, whether he was talking about Machiavelli or Hobbes or Locke. And of course, he was a Marxist. So there was Marx and Engels and all of that. Uh, so that's where my journey began. But uh, once I started research, you know, a great uh, privilege was to be supervised by Dilip Chakravarti. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked on a number of things. I began my research with the inscriptions of Assam. And that was not just because there was a coherent body of inscriptions, but also because it was my Sasural. Mm. So I always uh, think of my own journey with history as being partly by design, but a lot of it is just, you know, by accident. Mm. So I thought that I would be able to look at the landscapes that mm. figure in, uh, you know, the Priyahom inscriptions of Assam because I would be visiting. So whether it was the great Brahmaputra river mm. or, uh, you know, it was rice cultivation in the uh, rain drenched plains of uh, Assam, uh, all those things uh, I could see firsthand and they figure in the inscriptions. But I think, you know, visits to places as you research also helps 
because you realize what is there in your evidence mm. can be very different from what you see on the ground. Mm -hmm. So in Assam, anybody who has visited it would know that it's as much a land of the hills as mm. it is of the plains around the Brahmaputra. But the hills actually figure uh, very rarely in the inscriptions. Mm. They're just there in a sacred context. Mm. And if you think of habitation and if you think of cultivation and so on and so forth, which figures in the inscriptions, uh, you know, that doesn't figure in relation to the hills. Mm -hmm. Now, at the end of this, uh, my supervisor suggested that we do a joint paper mm. on the Assam Burma route to China. And that's how I went on to do my PhD because I got so fascinated with looking at routes and how you could historically delineate them that uh, I decided to then sort of read, breathe and research uh, trade routes. So that was my training period, you know, the beginning of my journey. And then, of course, I went on to write about okay. other things. Lovely. Magnificent. And I think, uh, as you say, as you're, uh, when you were doing your undergrad at Stephens and getting introduced to these readings, you realized that one of the most interesting things you could do is enter the world of history and to perhaps not only just read it but question the past think about the many ways in which we can interpret history so and, and you stuck dominantly with the ancient past you've done marvelous work when it comes to the Harappan civilization you've dealt deeply engaged deeply with Ashoka um, but one of the things that I have observed as a student of the past is that many perceive histories from the medieval and the modern era to perhaps be more vibrant and multi-layered whereas the ancient worlds are sometimes unfairly seen as colorless with rigid narratives. Now, a lot of popular writing recently has also been based on the medieval and the modern pasts. Um, but your work has been monumental in shedding light on the fascinating narratives from the ancient past, as I said, be it the Harappan phase or the world and times of Ashoka. So what is your take on this perception that some hold when it comes to the ancient past? So uh, first, I must correct you. I have actually not felt uh, bound by the boundaries of the ancient and the medieval and the modern. I've actually looked at the modern histories mm -hmm. of ancient stuff. Mm -hmm. So I've looked at the modern history of Sanchi, for example, mm -hmm. and the modern, uh, you know, the travails and issues around mm -hmm. uh, Bodh Gaya. Mm -hmm. uh, I've looked at how uh, the 1857 mm -hmm. revolt mm -hmm. was uh, commemorated, especially in Delhi. But uh, you're quite right that people often think of the ancient, mm -hmm. students often think of the ancient as not having, uh, you know, the kind of masala, mm -hmm. if you would like to put it that way, uh, as compared to uh, the medieval and modern. And Part of the reason might well be that we are looking at a very distant past. Mm -hmm. uh, and let's say to make uh, anonymous hominins mm -hmm. who journeyed, let's say, from, you know, Africa, slowly making their way right up to Tamil Nadu. Mm -hmm. You know, it takes a lot of skill to actually uh, bring drama into, you can do it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's much more difficult than talking about uh, Emperor Akbar, you know, mm -hmm. hunting or, uh, you know, the Sufis uh, singing and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. 
but I think part of the reason may well be that uh, at least the generation, you know, that I am the generation before me, you know, when we looked at books on ancient India, they uh, were not uh, written in an interesting way. And I think that has been one of the, you know, problems with a lot of writings mm. by Indian historians that they're just excellent when it comes to using, uh, you know, social science techniques. But uh, I don't think enough attention is given to the writing of, uh, you know, history. So uh, that may well be uh, one of the reasons. So when I started writing on the Harappan civilization, uh, you know, I discovered this treasure trove of files in the uh, file room of the Archaeological Survey of India. And I wrote up the first couple of chapters and I sent them to my editor and friend Rukun Advani of Permanent Black. And in a week or so, he just sent them back and he said, you know, when you're talking about something as exciting as finding uh, the uh, cities of Harappa and Mohenjo-daro and piecing together uh, how that civilization was discovered, you can't be addressing just academics. Mm -hmm. You have to be, uh, you know, looking at a larger audience who is interested in this. So he told me that I should just take a sabbatical from uh, the writings mm. of Indian historians mm. and I should concentrate on reading good fiction and he gave me lots of, you know, uh, suggestions on that. And I must say that at first I found it a little difficult, but you know, once you pay a lot of attention to how you communicate mm. uh, what you have read and researched, it becomes easy and I always tell my students that you know you should start doing this very early. Mm -hmm. I started much later, mm -hmm. uh, I started after my PhD was over and uh, I would have gained a lot if uh, emphasis on good writing was placed Absolutely. quite early. Absolutely. Um, in the beginning you mentioned coming across Mulkraj Anand's Maya uh, Mohenjadaro. Um, and that was a book, it's a very small graphic novel where it has a few pages. But when you're reading that, you can hear the Harappans talking, you can see them come alive. And I think that's very important that you need to complement your historical research with other writings to make it more accessible to the general audience. So I remember when in my first year when we were taught ancient India and Ashoka and we were recommended Ashoka in ancient India. The same thing what I said for Maya, my professor Dr. Dayal said for your work that when you read Ashoka in ancient India you can even hear the streets talking, you can hear the inscription come alive. So I think your writing has definitely done that for a lot of students of the ancient past. So thank you for that. But Thank you for reading the work so carefully. <laughs> um, but to um, connect it with that, um, I wanted to ask you about history and memory, especially how you deal with it in the context of Ashoka. Now, in Ashoka in ancient India, you have looked at the uh, Greek and Aramaic inscriptions of Ashoka in Afghanistan, and you've talked about the message, the language used, and the translation, and how when you use terms culturally grounded elsewhere, their meanings would have been modified in new lands. Um, and it could be puzzling for the people who are reading it in a new geography, a message that is coming from, well, let's say, the land where Ashoka lives in. 
So drawing on that, could you A, shed a bit of light on how complicated the process of studying history is, that it's not just about finding sources such as inscriptions, but deeply reading them. But also in contemporary times, if we were to see, let's say, an Ashokan inscription or an Ashokan pillar at Firosha Kotla, where neither do you remember Ashoka or the Sultan who brought it to Delhi, but the Latwale Baba, the conversation on the past and what it was intended to sort of convey keeps on changing. I think that's one of the fascinating ways in which history is constantly kept alive. So please shed some light on that. So I'll take your second question mm -hmm. first. And that's a great example that you've given. And uh, you know, that actually just underlines something which is so central to uh, to historical objects, mm -hmm. which is that there is actually a construction history. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Emperor Ashok got that pillar uh, created. You can talk about the sculpting, the polish, the fact that, well, the inscription is so high, could people actually have read it from the ground? Mm -hmm. Did somebody mm -hmm. stand there with the, uh, you know, exemplar and read it? Because you can't read it uh, off the pillar. But there is the afterlife, mm -hmm. uh, you know, of the pillar as well. And that's actually true for, uh, you know, for a whole lot of places. Uh, it is multi-layered. Mm -hmm. B.N. Goswami before this was talking about an onion and how you mm -hmm. peel a layer and then another layer appears and so on and so forth. And, you know, I'm presently working in the forests of Bandhavgar. And there you have these cave shelters which were created in the second century. And they were created... Uh, by merchants and sometimes by ministers and very rarely by kings. Mm. Uh, but these were not for religious people. But in the 7th century uh, CE, what happens is that these get repurposed and they become, uh, you know, Shaiv shrines. Mm. Similarly, if you go outside Bandhavgar, there's a village called Kutiala, and Kutiala has this large hemispherical stupa mm -hmm. and that's worshipped today as a Devisthan. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, you have to, uh, you have to give agency to later periods and you have to respect the kind of diversity that exists. Uh, when you look at the past, there isn't a singular meaning that exists. And if we are going to try to, in the 21st century, we are going to try to recreate an Indian history that mm -hmm. is just based on, uh, you know, one reading and one homogenous uh, kind of uh, framework. Mm -hmm. uh, we are really ignoring much that uh, exists and the diversity that exists. Now, on the question of Afghanistan, now as far as Afghanistan is uh, concerned, there are quite a few Ashokan inscriptions there. And I think uh, Ashok may well have sent his message mm -hmm. in whichever form he wanted. But his administrators in uh, Afghanistan must have put their heads together and realized that if this is the kind of message that goes, it's not going to appeal to anyone. So they changed the message around, mm -hmm. changed it in the sense they modified it. Mm -hmm. And they put it within uh, the form that let's say uh, people from West Asia, from Persia, for example, were very used to. This was very close, uh, you know, to the areas yeah. which were part of the, uh, you know, Achaemenid mm -hmm. uh, empire originally. 
and therefore there is a much there is in the earlier inscriptions ashok is speaking in a tentative way yeah. here you have emperor ashok speaking with great authority and saying well i you know have given an order that hunters should not hunt and fishermen should not fish and they have stopped whereas mm. in his earlier inscriptions there is much more of an appeal that is mm. uh, you know made uh, the inscriptions are also in aramic and in greek so again the language of administration mm. uh, is of that area is what is chosen so uh, you know when you look at inscriptions it's not just what the emperor said but what is done on the ground mm. that matters and then how did people receive these inscriptions mm. so afghanistan if you look at the uh, formal evidence of afghanistan from the historical people period i mean people were actually and continued from prehistoric times onwards enjoying their meat mm. you know and i don't think ashok's messaging about uh, giving up meat mm. had any impact at all so constantly you have to you know juxtapose different kinds of sources and what you can do with the ashokan inscriptions is to talk of intent mm -hmm. that this is what ashok wanted but did this happen on the ground mm -hmm. that's a larger and much more complex question absolutely um and i think uh, receiving the past i don't know if you would agree with me on this but do you think that when one one once you receive the past and you perceive it it's also a way of personalizing it so you make sense of history but you personalize it by giving it a meaning of your own so just to uh, draw on what we were talking about earlier i think that the ashokan pillar at firosha kotla for it to become the lat pale baba is the most personal thing that a community can do to make sense of a distant past so in my opinion when somebody goes to pray to that ashokan pillar they are trying to actually engage with a moment in history that's far away from them so do you think that exercises like these where you not only receive the past in a certain way but you give it a meaning of your own is an activity and exercise in personalizing history absolutely and i think what has survived of the past especially in villages hmm. has survived because it has been integrated into an existing uh, universe hmm. of local and folk beliefs hmm. so uh, if you look at uh, the scriptures hmm. you know if you look at for example uh, the purans and hmm. so on and so forth there are sanctions against the worship of broken images mm. but on the ground you can go to any part of india mm. and in the gram sthans mm. and in the shrines of the khera devta and the khedi dadi and mm. so on and so forth you will find a whole lot of sculpture mm. that is kept and it is worshiped as a form mm. which is very different from what originally uh, this was but it has survived there because people uh, worship it in terms of their own belief and it's not just sculpture so in uh, the faridabad area there's a village called sihi mm -hmm. and in sihi you actually have uh, a place it's a mound mm -hmm. and in that mound you get a whole lot of iron ore mm -hmm. 
Now, whenever you go to see here, at least 15 years ago, you found people collecting that. Mm -hmm. And if you ask them, what is this? Uh, they would say, uh, you know, this is used by us for as an antidote in poisons. And then you talk around, and that's because, uh, according to local belief, you know, this is where the snake sacrifice of the Mahabharat happened. And these are the bones of those dead snakes. And if you use those bones, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a kind of antidote mm -hmm. to any disease that you have, which, uh, you know, has come from something poisonous mm -hmm. that you have imbibed. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, more power to people. Yes, it's, it's uh, of course, at the same time, it's something that, let's say, policymakers mm -hmm. are very uncomfortable with. So, if you were to uh, juxtapose this, for example, with what the archaeological survey mm -hmm. would want. The archaeological survey would uh, want everything to be frozen in the time period Absolutely. when it was constructed. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a big, there's a tension that exists between mm -hmm. how people perceive things on the ground Absolutely. and, you know, what is done in the corridors of government and power. Definitely. I think this entire debate on what's personal and what's protected keeps on it is ongoing and you see that be it at Ferocia Kotla or Pir Gaya where time and time again and all around the world actually where time and time again authorities would like for things to be frozen in the time that they are from but people need to make sense of what's around them and therefore the process of personalization begins. Now in the beginning you talked about how one of the reasons perhaps that people might not engage with the ancient past in the same in a similar manner in which they do with the medieval and modern phases because they seem to be more recent is because it's a distant time but it is a time with people it is a time with people who are processing the same sort of emotions going through the same um, uh, processes that we do today uh, they are experiencing love and laughter. That's one of the things that you've talked about in one of your uh, uh, lectures. And uh, these are people who are experiencing love. These are people who are experiencing grief. So maybe shed a bit of light on why study the history of emotions to perhaps get closer to an ancient past. Uh, to, to our ancient past and maybe you could also talk a bit about one of my favorite inscriptions from the Jogimara caves that you have uh, that you talked about in your uh, speech on uh, love and laughter and why study it so uh, I think emotions need to be studied because if you look at yourself emotions matter mm. how you feel matters and it has mattered not just in you know for looking at the ancient mm. but it's true across time mm. so to give you a modern example if you think of world war 1 mm. the way we were taught world war 1 was well you talked about the causes you talked about mm. the great battles and then you talked about the treaty of versailles how unfair it was and how it seeded in some way uh, the second world war mm. but if you look at the memorializing around those who died, mm -hmm. so uh, that's a different thing and that gives you an insight into grief. Mm. So if you just focus for a minute on how many people were killed. Mm. So, uh, you know, in uh, the Battle of Somme, mm. you had 20,000 people dying in one day. And if you think of the people, let's say in one country in uh, the UK, how many uh, died, who died? you're looking at very young people who died. Most of them 
were between 17 and 25. The other thing is their bodies were not shipped home. So, you know, there wasn't a body there for you to grieve over. Yeah. So the manner in which people who had lost their loved uh, sons and husbands and so on, uh, you know, reacted to this and the kinds of memorials that came up in many of the villages and small towns of uh, England give you an insight, uh, you know, into emotion in the modern uh, period. So I think emotions matter across uh, time. Now, as far as the ancient is concerned, uh, for me, you know, one of the questions that has always uh, popped up is that when can you speak of the first couple in ancient India, a couple which has a name, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there's a woman and a man and they both have names and love is being discussed. So uh, very early, I came across this inscription, which is in Chhattisgarh. Mm -hmm. It's in the Ramgarh Hill mm -hmm. in a cave, which is now called the Jogimada mm -hmm. cave. And that mentions a woman called Shutanuka. Mm -hmm. Shutanuka by name, and it is repeated twice, mm -hmm. Shutanuka by name. Uh, Devadina, the sculptor, or it could be the painter, mm -hmm. loved her. You know, that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, and she is, Shutanuka is mentioned in the inscription as a Devdasi. Mm -hmm. So for me, this is actually in some senses a very modern inscription. When you think of ancient India, you think of caste. Mm -hmm. You know, you think of Varna, you think of Jati. But here is a couple where the woman is mentioned in terms of her profession mm. and her name. That's her identity. Mm. So it also gives you an insight into identity. How do people define themselves as against how they were described in these subsets, you know, in the textual uh, sources. And here is this man mm. who is talking about love. And it's a love which is a sexual love mm. because the word used is based on uh, come. Mm. So, uh, you know, from that, uh, to look uh, at, you know, that was my starting point, mm -hmm. to go across time and look at the, uh, you know, the way in which love and uh, lovemaking is described in the sources is actually absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. So, you know, the Kama Sutra, for example, mm -hmm. is often used to talk about titillation. Mm -hmm. But actually, there is so much attention paid by the author to satisfying a woman's sexual desire mm. that, uh, you know, it makes you think mm. that, well, there were men who actually thought of mm. this, uh, you know, in ancient mm. India. There's also a marital love that can figure in the sources. Mm. There is, of course, a romantic love. Mm. And of course, uh, there are other emotions you can re recover. So I'm, I was interested in laughter too. And one of the things that struck me was that if you look at how the Buddha is imaged, mm. you know, this great man, perhaps uh, among the greatest, the greatest ancient Indian, mm. certainly, that we have had. And you think about him, he looks so somber. You will never see him smiling. Mm. And uh, on the other hand, if you look at some of the sculpture that is there in the Mathura Museum, mm. uh, in the Mathura Museum, you will all, you know, you will find a woman sort of 
after having had a glass of wine sort of laughing mm -hmm. and you know there's a man uh, holding on to her and holding on to grapes and so on and mm -hmm. so forth and then you ask yourself a larger question that were people who were very important mm -hmm. meant to look somber and dignified because that's what happens in Rome mm -hmm. so uh, in Rome if you look at the way in which the senators are depicted in all those hundreds of uh, busts that you have they all look very serious and grave. Mm -hmm. Nobody seems to be having a good time. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, you look at the mosaics in Pompeii, mm -hmm. and it's there that you find fun and laughter and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. So, you know, looking at uh, themes like this and talking of the Buddha, if you look at uh, Southeast Asia, you have the laughing Buddha. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, every culture has its own way Absolutely. of depicting the, uh, you know, the same uh, uh, persona. Yes. Um, also, talking about the Buddha, I remember in our classes in ancient India, we'd be talked, uh, we'd be talked, uh, we'd, be, we'd be talking about looking at those sculptures of Buddha from Gandhara with a moustache and with certain different uh, characteristics where the face changes from one sculpture to another. I think it's truly fascinating to read these faces and to read a history of emotions of love and laughter because I think they reveal a history of existence. And a lot of times um, when people hear about these things, they are stunned in a way where they either say, oh, ye tab bhi hota tha. Or they would say something which is very unfair to history, I think, or they were ahead of their times, which I feel is giving a lot of um, importance to the present and the future um, and not giving the past its due right. And I think um, in the specific case of Harappa, where I believe that uh, they, are, they are not believe, they are still silenced. We don't know what they're actually saying. Because of that, I think Numerous people perceive the Harappan past as very limited in the sense of their understanding it. Till what, till what extent can you go to actually understand Harappans? But I think that the very fact that the inscriptions are still silenced gives you more room to create these imaginative possibilities. Even maybe talk about histories of lovemaking and emotions in um, a past that is so distant that comes from prehistory so uh, from the bronze civilization so what do you think about the silenced harappans and the possibilities that come with an inscription that we can't read so as far as the uh, harappan inscriptions go it's really a pity they haven't been deciphered there are more than 4000 inscriptions but because we are looking at inscriptions where the average length of an inscription is just six characters and the longest inscription is 24 characters and there isn't uh, you know a bi-scriptural uh, inscription or a tri-scriptural inscription we don't know what they say uh, but what we do know is that many of the inscriptions were written from right to left we do know that many of the inscriptions must be the names of people because you will find them, for example, on amulets mm. and so on and so forth. But beyond, uh, I think one thing that many historians, unlike a lot of uh, people who love history, but you know, might feel uh, that it's too formidable to approach on their own from the sources, I think we uh, historians and archaeologists realize that there are other ways to tease out information. Mm. So, uh, 
For instance, if you go to Dholavira, Dholavira has the first public hoarding in the world. Hmm. There is this inscription, uh, the letters of which must have been fixed to a board where the material has uh, disintegrated, but the letters have survived and it was found flat on the ground in front of a gateway. Mm. And surely it must be identifying the elite area, mm. uh, you know, from where uh, people used to come down to what is, uh, you know, a kind of common, uh, you know, ground for meetings and events and so on and so forth. So, you know, context uh, does matter in such situations. But in the case of the Harappans, uh, I think everybody in India sees their, uh, you know, progenitors mm -hmm. as being uh, Harappan. I find it strange that nobody thinks of Africa when they think about their ancestors, mm -hmm. because we all actually came out of Africa and everybody thinks of the Harappans. And that may well be because so many uh, elements that you associate even with life today, you can see their cities, for instance, yeah. uh, you know, a diversity of elite groups. Uh, also, the beginnings, I would say, of manual scavenging. So, uh, if you think of Harappan cities, you have to think about, uh, you know, the drains and the bathrooms inside the houses. Who cleaned them? Who maintained them? What do we know about, uh, you know, those histories? How much has this changed over time? So, from the Harappans, if you go to the Dharma Shastras, nobody ever in the Dharma Shastras, I'm sure people did it, but the point is, according to the Dharma Shastras, you know, if you wanted to do anything, you had to go out of the settlement mm. and the ground had to be soft. Mm. So, uh, you know, cultural uh, mores change, yes. practices change, and I think the Harappans in that sense were far more civilized and there's much in common, you know, in having bathrooms and drains and so on and so forth as compared to uh, what happened uh, later on. But our cultural practices, which of course the, you know, the campaigns by the government has been trying to address, but our culturally our practices are much more, there are two kinds of, uh, you know, toilet people all over the world. There are washers and there are wipers. Mm. And we were the washers. We always mm. used water. Mm. And that's something that is mentioned in the Dharma Shastras, but it had to be done uh, outside. Yes. So, you know, the average person who goes and craps near uh, a railway track is actually following a very good <laughs> Dharma Shastra practice. But that's not the reason why yes. they ought to do it at all. Yeah. Um, and I think I'd like to highlight that point about the drainage systems and the houses because this is something you've talked about before. Yes, excellent drainage systems. The 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 urban planning of Mohenjo-daro is something that we are talked about that we are taught again and again throughout our uh, school years. But one thing that we must question is who was building these houses, who was maintaining these houses, who was maintaining the drains. And I think that's something that really provides you room to think about beyond what you see and beyond what you perceive. Uh, before we end this conversation, I wanted to talk to you about your, your recent book. 
Uh, your recent book has examined how Ashoka has been remembered and recast over time across countries. So I wanted to know how this experience was for you of traveling and finding Ashoka in places that you might have not expected to. And do you think that this traveling has opened more rooms for you to uh, imagine the past in uh, you know more colorful ways? So I think as far as traveling with Ashok goes, when I did my first book, Ashoka in Ancient India, I actually found that he was an extraordinarily cerebral man. Mm. Uh, you know, those are unique inscriptions. You don't find them. That doesn't become a kind of prototype for any ruler after that. So he himself has thought about uh, life and compassion and governance and how to make governance more compassionate uh, very very carefully now once i finished that book i think within a few months i really started missing him mm. and uh, by then i had got this offer from uh, ashoka university and when i joined ashoka university we get a faculty grant mm. uh, annually to do the research that we want so I thought, why not follow the remembrance of Ashok? Mm. This is something I hinted at, at in the last chapter in the epilogue mm. of Ashoka in Ancient India, that there's a book waiting to be written, actually mm. several books as I now realize, on how uh, Emperor Ashok was remembered. Now, once I started uh, searching for the remembrance of Ashok, what I found was, and this is true not just for Ashok, it's true for ancient and medieval and modern figures there's a big difference between the historical persona and what is remembered. remembrance is always selective uh, you know if you look at what psychologists have talked about if a story is told to 10 of us and we are asked to recount it within half an hour of that we will each recount it differently because our own ideas uh, our own experiences uh, you know uh, come into play when we do that. Now, in the case of uh, Emperor Ashok, so I traveled to many places in India. So in Sanchi, for example, Emperor Ashok, uh, you know, put up this big brick stoop. And uh, he also uh, put up a pillar there, a pillar which has a very admonitory message uh, telling the Sangha that, you know, if there is Sangha Bheda, that there is a strife within the Sangha and if divisions are created, people will be thrown out of the Sangha and they would have to wear uh, white robes and so on. So I'm sure the Sangha, the Sangha is anonymous, you don't hear of the Sangha there in terms of actual people, but it's Emperor Ashok who is giving this message in a place obviously of Buddhist worship and residence. Now later when, uh, you know, the the stupa is enlarged and elaborated, you have actually Emperor Ashoka being imaged there in the sculptures. And in those sculptures, actually, uh, Ashoka is shown as a mere mortal. He can't prevent his uh, queen, Pishadakshita, from actually mortally harming the Bodhi tree. He cannot uh, persuade the Nagas in Ramagrama to actually open out the stoop. He opens out all the other stupas, but he doesn't succeed in Ramagrama. They actually defend it and tell him that this can't be open. So the Sangha, you know, who's been given this lesson by Ashok is actually coming back 
and telling him that look don't think you are the buddha and you can preach to us you too are a mere uh, mortal now if you go beyond india and if you look at sri lanka for instance what i found in sri lanka was that he is remembered he is remembered as a king but he is remembered most often as a father uh, and that's because uh, his uh, son you know mahinda he actually converts formally converts devanand piyatissa the king and it is his daughter sangamitta who is also a nun who actually carries the bodhi tree a branch of the bodhi tree all the way to sri lanka and that branch and branches from that over time uh, you know are there all over but most famously in anuradhapura now ashok himself doesn't mention either mahinda or sangamitta in his epigraphs but he is remembered as the father of his children in uh, sri lanka wow. if you look at uh, let's say southeast asia the story which for me is the most striking comes from south thailand so in south thailand uh, in uh, a place called nakhon si thamarat you actually have an entire dynasty named after him so these are dhamma asokas and in the chronicle around this dynasty you hear about the fact that there were relics of the buddha that had been buried which the king of uh, nakhon si thamarat had forgotten about but at some point he gets a missive from the ashok of india it says you know it talks of the middle country the madhya desh and this ashoka our ashoka has actually made all these stupas but he doesn't have relics to enshrine in them so he is begging for these relics and it's very embarrassing because uh, the king doesn't know where the relics are but eventually he gets a brahmin who identifies the place the relics then are some of them are sent to ashok now on the other hand if you look at ancient texts it is emperor ashok always who is opening stupas and redistributing relics and here on the other hand he has become a supplicant seeking relics from a athai buddhist king so you know there are reasons you cherry pick the past when you remember and you do it in ways that uh, matter to your own uh, you know cultural value that's also true for nehru hmm. so prime minister nehru was i mean as i think most people know a great uh, admirer of emperor ashok and that's you know one of the reasons why uh, it's not the only reason why you know the sarnath pillar capital hmm. becomes the symbol of independent india yes. as it were but if you look at the sarnath pillar capital and you look at the inscription it is for buddhists but here is the first prime minister of india who transforms it into something which is a message about all of india and then you have a historian vasudev sharan agrawal who writes a book on the dharma chakra and shows that actually the chakra is common to all religious traditions i think in all this what was forgotten was that as far as ashok was concerned and the sarnath pillar was concerned the message was a deeply buddhist yes, message yes yes Uh, fascinating um, thank you so much dr lehri for not only peeling the many layers of history but also for bringing what we said in the beginning of the conversation a distant past 
much closer to us. Thank you so much for being in conversation with me. It today. was a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you.